0: I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. We're going to be discussing one of the hottest films of the year today, so let's go ahead and have our guests tell you who they are.
1: My name is Sandy Powell and my craft is costume design.
2: My name is Christopher Peterson and my craft is costume design.
0: Cinema is a visual medium, obviously. That means visual storytelling. How characters move in the frame. How they are situated in their environment. How imagery is juxtaposed. These are the building blocks of filmmaking. That stretches to every department, including, of course, costumes what characters wear says as much about them as any other element, and telling the story through clothing is as vital as telling it through photography, production design, sound design, and all other aspects of the trade. Costume designer Sandy Powell is a legend in this regard. She's racked up 14 Oscar nominations and three wins throughout her 30-plus year career. Just last year, she was a dual nominee for The Favorite and Mary Poppins Returns, and that wasn't even the first time she's picked up two nominations in one year. It happened twice before. Halfway through his own career, Christopher Peterson began collaborating with Sandy as an assistant on films like The Departed, The Wolf of Wall Street, and Carol, while also being an in-demand designer in his own right on projects such as Boardwalk Empire and Magic Mike. The two took up the reins together on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, a decade-spanning epic about the life and times of Teamsters union boss Jimmy Hoffa, and as you'll soon hear, their work was cut out for them. On this episode, Sandy and Christopher will talk about working with limited details on something like this, when the photo research trail runs cold. They're going to talk about a few specific outfits from the film and how they were conceived. And you'll also learn how everything from Death in Venice to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome has inspired them in their work. We're going to talk about all that and a whole lot more, so let's get into it. Alright guys, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you know, Sandy, this is the first time you've taken on a, a full on co-conspirator. I know you guys have uh, worked together in the past in other movies, but the reason is the sheer volume that we're dealing with on, on this movie. And I just wonder if you could, like, help us visualize that to start. How many costumes are we talking about? How many changes for some of these actors are we talking about?
1: We're talking over 600 costumes and for Robert De Niro himself, 102 um, with extras, we had over six thousand five hundred extras, I believe. Wow! In total covering, you know, five decades.
0: You decided right off the bat. I need. I need some help on this. Is that the I deal? I
1: Did but also also I had just finished or wasn't quite finished on two films I was working on in London: Mary Poppins Returns and The Favorite. Mm-hmm. And then the Irishman came up and I wasn't available to sort of drop everything and and run to do it. And I thought, well, I, I don't even know how I can do this without somebody that I know and trust working with me. Yeah. At which point I contacted Christopher to ask if he was up for the, up for the job. And he actually started several weeks before me doing all the sort of background and mm-hmm. the research and getting everything set up so that by the time I arrived, quite a lot had already been started research wise, really, wasn't it?
2: It wasn't as though I started in some vacuum without Sandy's voice in my head, and that's a two-parter. Basically, we'd worked together so many times that um, I sort of knew where to start and what information to bring to the table, and and we communicated during that period. And then when finally we were together, I think we started in L.A. Yes, I we, started.
1: Did we did. Yes, we did. We started. So
2: yeah. it was just—I mean, it was a, a sort of—it's pretty seamless, you know. It's—it's it's mm-hmm. the way we've worked together in the past. This one being different end that there's a different credit
0: yeah well tell me about what your first step tends to be like as soon as you finish the script
1: it starts well reading the script and then meeting with the director Mm. you know and so that's the first thing really is to hear what uh the director martin scorsese has to say about it and what his vision is and any instructions from him um and then diving into the research And then pretty soon after that, really getting our hands on actual clothes, actually coming to look, coming to L.A. specifically to the costume houses, which is where we started, and getting our hands on actual clothes and looking at the real thing.
0: Now, you said that uh, uh, Mr. Scorsese loves clothes, that he's interested in clothes. And I want to know how that affects you in tangible ways, like specifically on this project.
1: Well... It's really beneficial to have a, a director who likes clothes and is interested and has an understanding of them because um, not all of them do, strangely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it makes it a lot easier in a way. I mean, he, he, you get a, an immediate response and he knows what he's looking at. So all the feedback is, is, is genuine. Yeah, And I sort of believe what he says when he's talking about <laughs> knowing about it.
2: With Marty and with Bob and Al and Harvey, they, they're all New Yorkers, and they all grew up in this time period that the film spans, and so they have a real appreciation for what the tie would be.
1: Yeah, they all knew what shape tie goes with, you know, which lapel on a on a you know a jacket or suit mm-hmm. jacket,
2: what belt it would be, what kind of shoe, you know, how how things were worn, and so there were there were many days when, you know, we we learned things from yeah, all they, of them. They knew more than us, especially Marty, especially Marty, yeah. because you know. I think our first meeting, we had done several fittings with Bob and Al mm-hmm. and maybe Joe at that point. And we presented Marty with a-
1: We presented him with, a, with a, the initial costume fitting photographs. Now, the, the initial, that when you first meet an actor, you try things on, it really is just a very, very sort of first go. Mm-hmm. We put things on that we hoped would fit, but were sort of relevant to each of the periods. And you get a feel straight away of what is going to work and what's not going to work, mm-hmm. and that's that's the, they're usually the first visuals that we show Marty because research-wise, he would already have seen most of the research because a lot of it actually comes from him and his office who have already you know exhausted quite a lot of the um, the sources that, mm-hmm. that were available to us.
0: Yeah. Now he's also he also said at the outset that these these guys aren't flashy, so this wasn't meant to be Goodfellas, Casino, that world. But you're still, I want people to understand you're still telling the story through clothing. And I want to know what that story was. I mean, character by character, it's different. But Leon, you know, just Frank Sheeran, what was the story you were telling through clothes with Frank Sheeran?
2: It's a really complicated question because yeah. the design brief, you know, and the impetus for, you know, the visuals of Goodfellas and and Casino were driven by, you know, excess. And to a certain degree, there was a slightly vulgar nature to you know ace and ginger in casino and to henry hill and in goodfellas and this one it comes at a very particular time in the arc of you know the mafia in the united states where they'd just been busted at appalaken and they really all had to go under the radar and so while they cared about what they wore and they knew about clothing they made it their business to to not be photographed, to not be noticed, and to get on with the business of of running their families, mm-hmm,
1: right? not be overtly flashy or yeah. draw attention to themselves. Absolutely. So, but with Frank, because he he he's the one character that goes you know through all of the decades. Um, it's sort of it's it sort of ha- it occurs naturally. It wasn't like we set out to you know okay in in this decade or in this scene he's going to wear this because it's going to say this about him and mm-hmm. the story. It's just dressing this man. You know, from a young man and imagining what you know Robert De Niro would have looked like, you know, as Frank Sheeran, you know, thirty, forty years ago, as opposed to how we're dressing him now, and just going through all of those decades, and it sort of happens naturally. You sort of see the changes happen naturally. Of course, you know, he starts out without a great deal of money. I mean, he's not, you know, he he come he came from a working class background, and so that's how he starts out. But then, as he moves up in that world, you see he has a bit more money, and his clothes get a bit more expensive looking, mm-hmm. yet you know, as as Christopher said before, not flashy, but you, he has more. He has more clothes and they're a bit nicer than they were at the beginning. They
0: fit better, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what kinds of little interesting details did your research turn up about these people and what they wore and what, what, what they wore might have said about who they were?
1: Hoffer, again, not another sort of working class man. His suits really were meant to look just off the peg. I mean, nothing, not particularly tailored, but Having said that, he still was very well put together and smart. And it's sort of he he sort of it meant a lot to him to be well turned out and look res- respectable, which he actually, you know, that he actually says in that scene in Miami where he he's crazy at Tony Pro for being disrespectful and turning up in, up in to him. shorts. And then his funny little quirk that we notice in all the photographs was that he he wears white socks with a suit, which mm. For me, I don't. Know, I think that's really weird. Maybe a lot of people do that, but I've never really seen it before. It's you know, and, and especially in the sixties when the pants were sort of like narrower and a bit shorter, you you see you them see quite them. a lot. These sort of yeah. thick white socks. What's that about?
0: I don't know. Just I the, don't know. The guy just, wasn't a fashion socks. icon. That's I mean, all it there was, <laughs> we
1: couldn't find anything written about it. I mean, there wasn't anything. It's just it's just what he liked. You yeah. know, it's just a
2: quirk. I think it's one of those vestiges of somebody who grew up poor, and was told, you know what the uniform was for a successful man, but it's this one little vestige of the thing that he's done all of his life. He didn't think about matching the the socks to the the pant leg. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's it's, uh, it's character.
0: Go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say, obviously there, there, there wasn't actual material on each of the characters about their clothing and where they might've bought their clothing. So <gasps> all we had was the photograph that existed or the film footage of Hoffa that existed. Look at that. Look at how that, particular character dressed and then sort of transcribe that in a way to our actors because the actors none of the actors look like the parts they're playing but they're doing their version they're doing their version of Hoffa or Frank Sheeran or Russell Bufalino. Mm-hmm. Was
0: well, there anything specific about other people uh, in a similar vein like you say you saw the the photos with the white Sox with Hoffa but anything with Russell anything with Frank that you just noticed in the photographs that was just like oh that's
1: I think Russell looked the 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 sort of best dressed of all of them and the most meticulously dressed I would have thought, don't you think?
2: Yeah. And he was also along with Harvey, you know, because basically the structure of it was that Harvey was, you know, the boss and, um, Joe was the underboss and, you know, Frank was a soldier for them and just did their bidding. And so, you know, both with Harvey and Joe, there was more attention to the tie bars and the cufflinks and they were, I don't want to say that they were suddenly. Standify, but they were sharper than there was that distinction that we very, you know, consciously made that, you know, Frank, well, he looked nice because that's the uniform for those men, that Harvey and Joe um definitely were sharper. And then there's this very interesting story point that came out of the research about the ring, the the Liberty ring Mm -hmm. that Joe's character um gives to, to Frank, and the only other person that has the ring in addition to Joe is Harvey's character.
1: Yeah, Bruno. Mm
2: -hmm. And that was a very specific, you know, thing that came out of the research. And
1: interestingly, both um, Joe and Harvey in the fittings would be the ones where, you know, you'd be sort of like talking about an eighth of an inch difference in (laughs) in a cuff or where a button sits on a jacket. I mean, you know, that would go on for quite a while. Yeah. More than anybody else. And I think that a, a part of, you know, a part of that, it seems to be that that's what those characters would have done as well. It, yeah. it felt like it was right for those characters,
0: actually, I was obsessed with the story before I saw the movie. I read the book. I read two drafts of the screenplay. Like the book is amazing. And I'm just wondering if when you were reading the book, if there was anything in there that also stood out.
1: I don't think clothes came into it. i I do remember that we had to really hunt. Mm-hmm. We had to really scour everything for every every piece of information that we needed. I mean, we were fortunate enough to have in our department, frank sheeran's granddaughter Mm -hmm. who actually happens to work in in costume and so she was working with us and she did bring in a few extra photos that we hadn't seen before so that's that's what we had to do we just had to rely on things like that
0: i had a question about her later I'll, i'll bring it up now was there anything that she she brought to you that sort of unlocked any doors
2: for you or was it just added material that really well i mean she i mean she kind of granted us access to and not just us, um, to Marty and to Bob as well, access to a group of family photos that again, as Sandy said earlier, you know, we're costuming Bob, we're not costuming the actual man, but there were certain, you know, touchstones in all of the photographs that allowed us to allowed us a view into who this man was and certain things, you know, we lifted and other things we I mean ignored and-,
1: yes. and there were some things that wouldn't that, that the real Frank Sheeran, who was six foot four, you know, might have worn that wouldn't work on Bob. Do you know what I mean? And you I mean, if we were trying to replicate everything we saw, it would be it would be impossible to do considering the, the scale of the film. But sure, we were doing we were doing our versions of inspired by, you know, the photographs that we had access to.
2: You know, we tried to capture our version of mm. these men based on, you know, we had much more uh uh visual reference for Frank Sheeran than we had for the other men. I mean, there might have been maybe six photos of Russell Bufalino.
1: Wow, really? Yeah, and fuzzy, uh, fu- you know, really sort of like fuzzy ones from a, f- from a newspaper. And
2: <laughs> interestingly, um, Marianne Bauer, who is part of Marty's staff, who's also a researcher for all of his films, we were talking one day and I said, oh, there's this photograph of Joe Colombo. And I sent it to Marianne and she said, wait a minute, that's Russell Buffalino in the background, you know, and none of us. So that had,
1: was, no one, no one knew. Yeah.
2: yeah, nobody knew. It's all these happy accidents mm-hmm. between like the things that Sandy and I found together with Marianne. It just, it kept kind of, you know, unfolding before us.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, was there any uh, example where you know, the design and, and creativity took like a notable detour from what you had discovered in the research? Because, you know, for whatever reason, you, you were trying to accent a certain element of the story or something. Was there anything that you just decided to shy away from maybe the reality of what you found?
2: I would say the only, the only you know, step that maybe we took was to be a bit more adventurous with, you know, color, you know, and not to just do endless men in dark suits you know
1: well except we didn't know because a lot of the images that we were given were black and white we didn't know what right. colors were being used i mean we used color as much as we could so, yeah exactly so that it wouldn't be a sea of grey yeah. <laughs> and dark suits but <laughs> cool. i mean there are, you know men do wear suits with color i mean through the through the decades we in in the 50s we sort of used a lot of blues and greys and in the 60s we used sort of olive greens and mustards and in the 70s are the burgundies and browns so sort of try to introduce color as much as possible to to tell the passage of time as well.
0: This you. is uncanny because this is my next question was all about color. I wanted to start talking <laughs> about how we're how we're actually implementing uh these designs uh practically. So I, I wanted to start with with color palette and any kind of a color theory that you might have worked with the other departments on to carry the story all the way through. So what can
1: you tell me about that? Well, I guess pretty much what I just said about yeah. the the for us the colors, I mean the colors, you know, colors come in fashion, you know, and you you can look at a decade and see which colors are are dominant and prominent. So Mm -hmm. we had that for a start. And then also Rodrigo was um, talking to us about what his plans were. So we knew that that would affect everything too. We had some camera tests, didn't we?
2: I mean, he started the fifties in Kodachrome, a Kodachrome process on what he was doing and then moved to Ektachrome, I believe. And then a DNR process for the seventies. So each, each segment you know, tracked through with a, a slightly different look. And so suddenly that affected a bit of the colours that, you know, that we were using and how they, they filmed, right?
1: I guess, yeah. Yep. But we didn't change anything because of mm-hmm. that. You know, we mm-hmm. still stuck to what we were doing because our colours were sort of correct for the period. And mm-hmm. Told our story that way.
0: So was there anything about, like, a certain colour represents X no. for this character? No, or...
1: I, mean, I, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure some designers do that. I mean, I personally don't ever think about doing that. I don't yeah. sort of get too symbolic with it
2: this was again meant to be like a very real representation of the world mm. that we were portraying mm-hmm. yeah so to step outside of that and suddenly have some highly stylized color moment would, would seem i think it would
1: have yeah looked out of place and been
2: right. wrong
0: uh what about the, just the physical production the vast fleet of people putting this together i imagine uh what did like what did the shop look like i, I don't know you tell me like like
1: a aircraft hangar <laughs> filled with, I mean, we had racks and racks and racks of costumes. It was extraordinary how many that and And basically the department had to be run like a military operation mm. because, I mean, it was it was almost like, because our, our biggest decades really, the most of it takes place in the fifties, sixties and seventies. So it was really like doing three films concurrently. So we had, you know, literally three times as many costumes as you would normally in a period film, mm-hmm. you know, because in every decade there'd be hundreds and hundreds of extras. So thousands of costumes, all sort of all um, organized by, by date, by period, not just decades, but by one end of the decade to the next end of the decade.
0: Yeah. Uh, and presumably tailoring's going on constantly too. So there's
1: absolutely you know, I mean, full time, you know, right the way through, right till practically the last week of shooting.
2: Sandy and I had a group of four assistants each of whom had a very specific task one was a made to order assistant one was in charge of background one was in charge of principles and then there was a there were like two buyers as well so that's kind of one world and then there was the tailoring shop run by very extraordinary tailors and they had 10 people the entire time there was another floor of um people who did nothing but prep the costumes that had been pre-fit mm-hmm there was the se- se- I mean, it was. Just, and then was there was m- another.
1: Then there was another group of people that would have to actually clean all the costumes once they've been massive. Worn. So then it's it's huge, and then there is one person who's our supervisor, David Davenport, who runs the whole show, pretty much, yeah. and he's the equivalent of a producer, I guess.
2: Wow, it's like having a producer in your department. Although he is one of, he's the costume supervisor, but he has an acumen with producers and staff and actors and designers he just it's
1: i mean there were people even working shifts there was a night shift as well so that so that things would be ready you know so things would come off extras at the end of one shooting day and we might need them the next day so they have to come off be washed if necessary prepped put hung back up and all ready to go the next day
0: continuity paid attention to throughout as well absolutely it's just what an endeavor I wanted to uh, take some time here and talk about a few specific outfits in the film. And maybe you can speak to the design or how they came to be. Uh, Tony Provenzano's casual look in the Miami scene we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it comes in in his shorts and his shirt and well, completely different vibe than the rest.
1: Yeah. Well, that was in the script that, yeah. he, that he shows up in shorts. So, you know, and, and Stephen Graham was great fun to work with. I mean, he's such a character. And I'd worked with him before, years ago, actually, on Gangs of New York with marty um what we did was we had hundreds of pairs of shorts and and lots of different (laughs) tops and we just kept trying them on kept trying on every combination until until one sort of revealed itself as being the perfect (laughs) one that's kind of what happened yeah you sort of you sort of know when you hit the right one
0: that was the first scene i saw from the movie they showed a couple of scenes before they showed the full film to a few of us and i was just laughing uncontrollably in that scene al is so good in it yeah just
1: yeah they all are and then and then you know Bob's there sort of trying to keep the peace. Isn't <laughs> yeah, it? it's yeah.
0: really funny. Uh, the wives matching, uh, kind of matching outfits during the road trip. Mm. Uh, that, that's a, an opportunity for you to break out a little bit from the suits. And whatnot. It was. It that fun. was very exciting. Yeah.
1: Yes. The wives was a, a great opportunity to sort of get away from menswear for a bit. And we kind of dressed them as if, you know, they're obviously close. They've known each other for years. And they're the sort of women that probably go shopping together, mm-hmm. you know, and I can imagine one of them phoning up and saying, what are you wearing? <laughs> how many outfits are you taking? What are you wearing to when we go out to dinner? And so we sort of did it along those lines. And quite often we fitted them both together, mm. you know, which was great because then, you know, they're, they're sort of talking to each other about it. They're swapping things around. And we were like, you you know, Stephanie, you put that on, Catherine wear that. No, actually, Stephanie put Catherine's top on, swap over, because it was pretty similar size.
2: Mm-hmm. It was funny because it happened completely organically and essentially accidentally because somehow the fitting... Times got crossed. And so suddenly they were both there at yeah. the same time for the first fitting. And it was like
1: Well, it was uh, like going shopping with them both at the same time, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Russell's Christmas outfit,
0: his <laughs>
1: tie and all of that.
0: Tell me about that.
1: Well, I mean, all of the Christmas outfits are a little bit Christmassy. I mean, that was a that was a, a scene again, our rather scene that we could get some colour in. So I mean, I think everyone's wearing either red or green, aren't they? I mean, the, the ladies' one's wearing a green dress, one's wearing a red dress. And uh
2: and the girls are all... And the matching. girls are all
1: dressed up. And I kind of feel like Russell's sweater and the tie, it kind of feels like his wife made him put him up. Yeah, I know,
0: <laughs> yeah. Because <it's, laughs> you know. it seems like just out of character,
2: I guess, in some, in some it sense. It is, it's like, so. you know,
1: he's like, you know, go on, Russell. you could make an effort. And much <laughs> The, so- kids, are, the <laughs> kids are coming around.
2: Exactly, <laughs> and much softer than like the suits and ties and tie bars that we'd seen him in, up till then. Yeah, yeah. definitely.
0: Uh, I love Frank's truck driver uniform and the hat. You know, I assume that's... that. I I sense the history coming off of an outfit like that. So that's probably deep in your research where you found all of that. But tell me
2: the outfit that we, we um, devised for him is, is really, it's steeped in, in tradition for like what the teamsters wore at the time. There was always a cap. There was always the badge. There was leather jackets were very prevalent. It was workwear, you know, and it was nice because it set, it gave us a nice place to start and jump off from, you know, Mm -hmm. just before he dives into all of the suits to see him in, in something. Yeah, because
1: he bit. never looks like that again. Really. Yeah, right. and it's just and it really was to sort of set aside. This is him at his youngest. Apart from when he's in the uh, the army uniform in the war mm. moment. Mm-hmm. This is this is the youngest Frank.
0: Was there? Speaking of that, was there more war stuff ever sh- that was shot for this? Because it was an, interesting to me. It was such a, a huge part of the beginning of the book.
1: In an earlier script, there was there was a mm-hmm. bit more warfare.
2: The first part of the book is really beautiful, and it does explain a lot but i don't think it takes anything away from the movie no, that no. eventually came to be but but yeah there may have been more more of you know i the,
1: think there was originally a bit more war yeah.
0: stuff the essence is still there in the film anyway and then what's interesting about it to me is just how the regiment he was a part of it just kind of explains the, the war yeah, made like, him like
2: 400 I mean, active battle days yeah. that he served i mean he was a monster yeah you know he was a machine
0: yeah absolutely And then going to the end of the timeline, just the Lewisburg prison garb. I mean, uh, I assume there's plenty of research that led to that as well. But is is there anything interesting to say
2: about that stuff? Yeah, I mean, the federal prisons at the time, it was very different because, I mean, the federal prison system basically bought all of the seconds from the World War II uniforms. Mm -hmm. And so all of those, that clothing became, you know, the prison uniforms. It's not like now where they have all these horrible polyester, you know, Orange is the new black, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. uniforms. Then it was just workwear. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 the sort of history of of where that clothing comes it's from. It's actually
1: much nicer. It's actually quite cool looking. Well, it's sh- it's the, chic, it's chic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so everything now is designed to be sort of a uh, well, hideous. I, I, I,
0: humiliating, <laughs> humiliating. Exactly,
1: it's meant to look awful. But I mean, I think none of them look bad in, in their prison gear.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, and again, even when you get to um, the the scenes at the end of the movie with Russell well, and
1: without his teeth in
2: without his teeth in. um you know even that was the same yeah. the same vibe it was work where it's only it's only in the last 20 years where we've suddenly gone to you know you know polyester bulletproof orange and tan scrubs so mm. yeah. it was, and it was nice to see yeah uh,
0: something maybe worth spotlighting here you talked about the the specific rings that are a part of the the story uh, but just finger wear in general rings that might I mean was was there a lot of focus on what kind of rings these guys were wearing and and stuff so anything come to mind for that
1: they wouldn't really have worn wedding rings they didn't take men didn't back then really wear wedding rings they would just have a signet ring that they might have had
2: mm-hmm. i mean but so Before, the, anyway. the significance of kind of a frank's jewelry was i mean he was given a you know teamster watch when he became like the president of the local and then jimmy it's a very interesting moment in the script actually you know which is the frank sheeran um appreciation dinner mm-hmm. where Kind of everything comes together and yeah. the decision is made where frank is presented with a decision that you know by russell and jimmy that they're both commanding his loyalty but on that night is the night where frank gets you know the liberty coin ring from russell mm-hmm. and he also gets you know a Tissot watch from from jimmy that's engraved you know as a gift so it's this kind of interesting moment where these these two men are demanding loyalty of him and it's also two men like men like do men give each other jewelry as gifts anymore because i think it might have been a thing then
0: i don't know i don't think i've ever given a, 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 a yeah dude, but a dude, dude friend I, then it was and <laughs> yeah, so
2: interesting so as far as you know like the man jewelry um <laughs> you know i mean it was it was a, it was a period of tie bars and and cufflinks and yeah. and
1: and they weren't the kind rings. of gangsters wearing diamonds you know they're, exactly. they're not got yeah. the big you know fistful of rings and and showy things as they're not being showy so
0: Same kind of question, but regarding neckties. I feel like neckties are an opportunity to do something else here.
1: Neckties are big. Neckties. It's all about the ties. (laughs)
2: There, there are photos of Sandy and I standing amid piles of ties on our wardrobe truck, trying to decide which and where. Because on any given day, there was eight to ten or twelve major characters. I mean, usually
1: it's the only way a man, you know, in a suit, can express himself. (laughs) Have a little bit of color, a little bit of pan, a little bit of character. Uh, and then of course the ties changed through the decades with the, with the difference of the suits and the lapel widths and the jacket shapes. Yeah. And when um, there were there, I mean, you know, we've been asked this, haven't we? How many ties were that? I wish we, I we mean, should maybe figure it out. I mean, I think, I think <laughs> hundreds.
2: On, that's like, uh, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it was thousands. Yeah. It was thousands. Oh, thousands
1: overall with extras as well, but just in terms of our, our principles and you didn't want two to clash or you didn't want, you know, somebody to look better than the other person it's it sort of all, they had to work as a group the ties as well when you there were them easily together. there were
2: easily 600 individual ties just in our speaking characters yeah you know and then plus yeah six 6500 extras so
0: well you guys are professionals so maybe not like when you're looking at this pile of ties is do, do you how do you like i don't know if, if i'm looking at that much pattern and stuff it's i feel like my mind is going to start melting or something
1: well so. the thing to do is not think about it too hard yeah well that's and also, probably it. And, and 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 just go do it instinctively. You know that's what I that's how I do it. I just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, have a couple in my hand and hold them up, you know. You know, with the actor usually in the outfit and you mm-hmm. sort of like do this, do this or sometimes without. And it and it just, you know. It's it's
2: sort of like, you know, it it, it's it's just like, you know, any anybody's taste you're always going to be as an individual dr- drawn to a certain kind of thing and as a designer you fall into a rhythm, you know, with the tie selection and Mm. the fabric selection i mean this is what that character would choose
1: yeah and you try not to i mean like you know russell's ties would be more interesting than frank's you Mm -hmm. know what i mean so you'd try to not give frank a russell kind of tie Mm -hmm. and vice versa yeah i suppose
0: by the way just talking about the collaboration here i mean is it just agreement Straight down the middle or were there any interesting disagreements that the two of you might have had? Rules,
1: yes. Fighting every day. Tell me about the (laughs) fight. No, we didn't fight. (laughs) She's a hideous
2: (laughs) human being to work with. Not true. We didn't
1: actually fight. No. I mean, no, we didn't, amazingly.
2: It's a question that we get quite a lot. um, And it's it's born out of a lot of things. But the thing after having been asked this question a couple of times, I always come back to um, we've worked together a lot and we've developed a shorthand. And that's like money in the bank, because there are certain things that, that I, I can, I can sort of imagine that Sandy might be headed towards as far as a decision is concerned, although I'm constantly surprised mm-hmm. by what it is. But the main thing other than the shorthand is that we are from the beginning, we've been yeah. quite close and quite good friends. And so regardless of what's going on, we're always laughing. But mm-hmm.
1: we can also agree to disagree, which mm-hmm. does happen. It's I, You know, we yeah. don't agree on every single little thing because nope. we don't have exactly the same taste, but that sort of works. Mm-hmm. It sort of works in in something that has such scope and is so huge. There's, there's room for there to be, you know, yeah. different tastes and different decisions being made.
2: And also too, I mean, it, there's a moment as a department head, not always, but especially on something of this size where... I mean, your greed, I mean and especially with the size of staff that you know mm-hmm. we had where every day it's like from the second you get in the car in the morning to the time you get to the set and then go to the shop and then talk to the tailoring shop and then talk to the assistants and then talk to the buyers, there is a moment where honestly, you just go, Please God, does somebody have an idea about what this should be, or at least have somebody to bounce it off of, yeah. you know, and so that's kind of been the great thing and there were no no we never we never have any kind of moments of you know but it's like sandy said you I mean there are moments when someone will come up to us and say hey guys what do you think of this fabric do you want the black one or the white one and at exactly the <laughs> same time sandy will say black and i will say white and then we just we kind of look at one another and go okay great we'll pick this <laughs>
1: and one. Then, then there'll be a decision yeah it uh, never came to blows not yet, yet
0: anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to, you know, we talked uh, earlier about how uh Mr. Scorsese came in with his wealth of knowledge about all of this, but was there anything that you can recall where he specifically made a tweak of note regarding
1: costuming on this? Not of anything. I mean, he I mean, this is on, on other films as well. He will say, "Hmm, is over another tie. Can I see another tie option?" And that would be it. It would never be as much as another whole outfit. It and You'd always have another tie up your sleeve, obviously, because in case that question happens and it, it'll be a tie that I like as much or Christopher likes as much or, you know, there we go. Yes, there's this one. And then and you've got
0: 600 it. of them
2: anyway to choose from. In the well,
1: back, yeah, so. <laughs> but that would be hopeless coming to the set with 600 choices. We'd never sure. get the day
2: started. I think the only, the only, the only moment of like, hmm, was there was a hat on Joe and it was about whether the oh, brim, the brim, the brim was, the hat. so we had a sort of vaguely speaking, like a pork pie shape. and. Joe wanted to wear the, the brim flipped up up. and I, Sandy and I kind of went up and we were talking about it. We're thinking, but
1: it looks like, it looked like the brim had flipped up by accident.
2: Right. And so so, we moved it. And so I went in with the stick and unfortunately like poked the tiger and I went to reach for the brim and, and Joe was like, no, 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 no. And that was like, and then Marty kind of said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, let's have it flipped up." That was the only. It. I
1: mean, there was nothing. That was the major. only I mean, moment on the I mean, entire that's film. The detail. I mean, really, there's nothing. I, I love that he was
2: pretty adamant. <laughs> this is the thing, though. This football. is what we were saying earlier: is these guys, these guys li- lived stuff. through this era. They mm. understand like the subtleties of what mm. the way a hat is cocked, the length of a tie.
1: Sometimes, when an actor is insistent on something and you don't agree, but it's not the end of the world if they do. I mean, you you, you have to let it go.
0: Pick your battles, right? yeah So just kind of want to bring things down here and and, and uh, ask a couple of sort of rapid fire questions for you. What movie costume do you wish you had a hand in designing?
1: Okay, that's so difficult because <laughs> if I think of my favorite costumes, I mean they're they're my favorite because they're done really well, so I couldn't have done them any better. right. So really the answer to that question is something which I think should have been done better, which of course I'm not going to tell you.
0: Well, then how about you tell me what, what's like the most memorable movie costume design for you?
1: Oh God, there, there are many, but I suppose for me the most memorable, the, the one that sort of had a huge impact was Death in Venice. Oh. The costume is designed by Piero Pierrotosi and I saw that as a, very, as, a, as a 14 year old. Yeah. And that's when I noticed costumes in films.
2: How about I you, have a couple of them. A costume that I wish I had a hand in designing was the Darth Vader costume. <laughs> yeah. From, really? from, I didn't know that. From the original Star Wars. <laughs> and basically anything, anything Kubrick, mm. the, like Barry Lyndon or Clockwork Orange. And then one that we actually share, which you did not mention, is Cabaret. Cabaret,
1: of course. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was similar, similar. And I saw that. I remember my mum snuck me into the cinema to see that because I was underage. <laughs> And that was good Yeah, Darth Vader, man,
2: please.
0: (laughs) Genius. That's a good answer. Uh, What's one small thing the average person can do? I swear I'm not asking this for my own benefit. the average person can do to step up their sartorial game? Look up and not
2: look at your phone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Very good. I mean, there's the piece of advice that um, Coco Chanel gave, which is look in the mirror and take one thing off. Don't overdo it. Mm, Less is more. Uh,
0: If you could wear only one color for the rest of your life.
2: What would it be? <laughs> um,
1: I will.
2: So, what's the penalty if I want to wear other colors?
1: <laughs> Do you know what? The obvious answer is black, but I'd probably say blue because blue—you can go to nearly blue. Blue's quite, you know. I could, you could go to practically black, and then there are shades of blue that are flattering. Yeah, you've, you you've got a range. You can. You've got a range. That's
2: a good one. I would likely go on a hunger strike if I was forced.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, black would be my answer, actually. Absolutely.
1: That's that's too easy. See, that's a cop-out. I know,
0: but... <laughs> Hunger strike, that's the way. <laughs> Hunger strike. Is there a specific outfit that really made you fall for, for this this work?
1: Oh, God. I mean, I'd be going way back to my childhood, I think. Yeah? Yeah. I do remember an outfit, actually. I do remember, Okay. I'm going way back, really early 60s, or sort of about mid-60s, and there was a girl that, that lived down the street, and she was about two years older than me. And her mother had taken her to Carnaby Street you know, Carnaby mm-hmm. Street in swinging 60s London. Mm. And she had on a teeny little mini dress that was lime lime green and turquoise, swirly psychedelic pattern, and then little hot pants underneath. Mm. And I wanted that outfit. And then as soon as I could, I, I tried to make myself a version of it. So Yeah. Awesome. God, I mean,
2: I had this enormous, and here, here we go. Um, I had this enormous crush on Tina Turner when I was a teenager. And it was right when she was having her comeback. But just like everything Tina Turner wore, it just seems like so sexy. And so like yeah. everything moved and everything glittered. And that I kind just of thought, sequin- wow. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you could yeah. like talk about like the Dior bar suit, which, you know, I sketched endlessly in college, poorly, <laughs> by the way. Um, I don't know. I mean,
1: yeah uh, yeah it's,
2: it's, it's sort of, there's so many coming that,
1: back to one outfit that changed yeah. your
2: life is pretty difficult yeah but that's that's the that's probably the nothing brief.
0: from mad max beyond thunderdome on tina turner though i imagine are you kidding
2: me <laughs> oh yeah yeah absolutely that's number one okay yeah. well yeah. and actually actually you know mel as well <laughs> thunderdome are you kidding me i can't believe you just <laughs> i cannot believe you just threw down thunderdome i'm I th- it's one of my favorite movies from my teenage <laughs> no years way. well there we go Please, I mean, yeah.
0: That opens up a whole new door for me on you. I want to spend another thirty minutes talking. <laughs> oh
1: God! Oh, God. <laughs> you can have a boys' talk about
2: <laughs> about all the like the fanboy films from like the eighties and nineties. Totally, I'm down.
0: And then I've been asking this of everyone at the end of the show lately. Uh, what's the movie that made you fall in love with movies?
1: Well, I guess mine was Death in Venice. Yeah, and maybe before that, the first movie I ever saw was Mary Poppins.
0: Which must have been a dream for you last year.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing to actually work on that. It's one of the reasons I, was, I really wanted to do it, because it was the first film I saw in a cinema. I must have been four years old. Wow. And then Mad Max for you, I guess. No, not, not <laughs> Mad
2: Max, but th- this is definitely a two-parter, because before I knew that I was going to pursue a career in film, I saw The Color Purple in the theater. And I just thought it was such a beautiful film. I still think it's a beautiful film. Um, and I loved the costumes. I loved the, everything about it. Um, but once I started, you know, um, doing this, there's the Visconti film, Il part the, the Leopard, mm-hmm. and
1: was anything Visconti, any, no anything,
2: but but that particular film, I was like, I couldn't believe it. And then I started thinking about like, who is this person? And then it was Piero tozzi And then you go to Death in Venice, and you go to all these other films, and you suddenly realize, oh my god, that's artistry. You know, yeah. you can do that. You can tell stories. You can move people. You know, by putting a frock on somebody and sending them onto the set, you know, it's so beautiful, you know? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And you've done a great job telling this story as well. The Irishman, it's, you guys crushed it. I mean, again, the volume is staggering throughout this three and a half hour epic. So uh, congratulations on that. And and thank Thank you so so much much. for coming onto the show and talking about it. Thank Thank you. you so much. Sandy and Christopher's work on the Irishman is just one of countless aspects to mine on this three and a half hour production. It's a film that arguably edges out another Sandy Powell collaboration, Gangs of New York, for Scorsese's most ambitious work to date. And that's obviously saying something. This is an artist and his team of craftsmen and women operating at the absolute top of their games. So give this a look. The Irishman is streaming on Netflix right now, and you should really just feed this thing into your eyeballs ASAP. It's an epic achievement. Tall Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix.